Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Tempe, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in the state and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on the season two opener of Word, pushing back against the depiction of young people from low-income families in film. These kids, they don't have that benefit. If they slip up once, it can alter their trajectory so greatly and could take them down a path that, that takes years to, to correct. Pushing back against migrant abuse. Who did we happily become for a state that told us that we are somehow superior and even different than the people we put into cages? and pushing back against the suppression of women's rights. Nobody blends scholarship and poetry anymore. Nobody blends sociopolitical commentary and creative nonfiction. It's all ahead on the season two opener of Word. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks for joining us. Lolo is an independent film being screened in Scottsdale this week. Writer and director Nick Ritchie will be at the screening on September 12th for a Q&A session following the film. Dear Admissions Committee, as a counselor at a low-income magnet school in the dilapidated Fourth Plain District of Vancouver, Washington, I have seen my fair share of troubled students. Children plunging headfirst down disastrous paths despite my best efforts to steer them toward a future that involves steady employment, a craft or trade in some cases, maybe even college. That's a clip from a scene entitled Graduation. I had a chance to catch up with Nick Ritchie via Skype and asked him why he wanted to make a film about the depiction of young people from low-income families. You know, when I typically am watching, you know, a movie with teens in it, their mom is a doctor and their dad is a lawyer. And, and, you know, they throw a house party and there's a band and it looks like they spent $100,000 on this house party, you know. And uh, I really wanted to kind of highlight this background that I was familiar with, a background where, uh, you know, this USC scandal, you know, where you've got extremely wealthy parents spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to fake their kids, you know, through college. Uh, I didn't even know that SAT tutors existed when I was in college. That wasn't a reality. Right. My parents, they never took the SAT. And half the kids in my neighborhood, college wasn't a reality. You know, I have friends that went on to do great things and never saw a college textbook, but they had to fight their way up laying bricks or, you know. So the film has that kind of hope. And I I'm hoping that audiences are connecting to that thread in the movie also, that even though these young women in the movie are experiencing these crazy obstacles that are that are really setting them back potentially, that at the end of the day, they still have hopes and dreams and they just don't have as a clear cut of a path as some people get to have. And know? that's a um, very prevalent theme throughout the movie with dealing with coming of age in a variety of ways, I think I would describe it. You see scenes where there's obviously drug use, um, alcohol abuse by parents, these students sort of figuring out, well, what are the next steps in life going to be? Is it going to be college, fighting, teen pregnancy, all those kinds of pressures that teens deal with on a daily basis. And, you know, one of the things that I was I really wanted to focus on was just how muddy, how brackish those waters are when you don't have a lot of resources, you know. So there's a, you know, a subplot of one of the young teens trying to get a, a plan B pill and how much $75 actually is to her. 
these kids, they don't have that benefit. If they slip up once, it can alter their trajectory so greatly and could take them down a path that, that takes years to, to correct. How did you come up with the name Low Low? When you hit rock bottom, there's nowhere to go but up. And I had sort of translated this into this idea of, you know, you have to hit the low, but not just the regular low. You have to hit a low, low point in your life before things can get better. And so it was sort of about this mentality that was instilled in me very early on in my life that when you hit that bottom, or if you do, when you do, tie your boots back up, you know, because sure. now there's nowhere to go but up, you know. And uh, so it even that to me, the title had that positive connotation attached to it. Well, it definitely sounds like you channeled some of your own experiences into what we see in the dialogue. And I am also wondering, did you camp out and listen to teens talking in malls and clubs (laughs) and other places to get what I feel is a very rich and sort of spot on frame for the dialogue? I totally eavesdropped on so many teens in prep for this movie. (laughs) I I I figured as much. Tell you how much research I, you know, I absolutely was trying to be as accurate as possible. Part of the theme of this show is about protest, and I think some of the things that you said about the way that you framed this, uh, number one, getting at a kind of an underserved community in film. But I think to me, one of the things that I see about this piece is that it is sort of a protest against those who feel like, okay, there's different classes of people and you never really get out of your own class, if you will. That's right. Yes. The, the neighborhood that I grew up in is a straight up immigrant neighborhood. It could not be more of a melting pot. I grew up with kids from Tonga, Pacific Islands, you know, Cambodia, Russia, Bulgaria, people displaced from the Bosnian conflict in the 90s. You name it. Uh, there were immigrants from those places and we were all kind of packed together in this melting pot of a neighborhood. And the idea of getting out of there, the idea of moving beyond that and doing something spectacular, doing something special, believing that I had a voice was always difficult. And by the way, it was the easiest for me as just a straight Caucasian male. I absolutely wanted to hopefully create a voice for what is to me an underserved community, particularly in the entertainment industry, and shine a light on this idea of being able to move past these seemingly implacable obstacles that the lower class, in quotes, faces, you know, because it's tough. There's a reason why people get boundary exceptions, right? Because they can take their kid to a high school uh, and have the resources to take their son or daughter to a high school. They know they're going to get a better education because that's where the resources. There's a, there's a line in the movie about it uh, where she said, you know, look, this 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 young woman grew up here and happened to be in this school and, and have this tough life. If she was blessed enough to grow up just five miles east of this one location, she could have had 50% more resources. You know, for me, at least, I'm, I'm already seeing it connect to some young women that have reached out to me, young women from my neighborhood that got pregnant in high school and had to fight their way out of the low low and, and said even just the trailer made them cry, made them feel like, hey, th- that was me. I, I was her. I was, I was Lana. I was Willie. You know, I was Candace. I was Ryan. H- hearing that, I don't think there's anything that I could possibly be more excited about in regard to this film <laughs> than getting just that, those, those sure. connections. 
Nick Ritchie is the writer and director of Lolo, which is in Harkins Theaters in Scottsdale on September the 12th. You can find out more information by going to the Harkins Theaters website or by going to ours at word.kjzz.org. Nick, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to be on the show, and I appreciate you supporting uh, independent film. And we'll be back after a short break. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. Listen to KJZZ as you work and play around the house with your smart speaker. This is Ophira Eisenberg from Ask Me Another. Hey, I'm Alex and host of Reveal. I'm Glenn Washington. This is Ira Glass of This American Life. Bring the radio into your family room and never miss a minute of your favorite weekend shows. Just ask your smart speaker to play KJZZ and get a news update and weekend entertainment right at home. Just tell your smart speaker to play KJZZ. Thanks to David from Paradise Valley for donating his 2009 Land Rover to support his favorite shows. You can donate your vehicle, too. For more information, visit cars.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. On September 4th, writers from around the country held protest readings in over 40 cities, including Tucson and Phoenix. The event, entitled Writers for Migrant Justice, was designed to raise donations for a nonprofit organization called Immigrant Families Together, which helps pay bonds for parents in detention and works to reunite them with their children. What you're about to hear are poems from some of the participants in their own words. You can find out more about them at word.kjzz.org. This is called Electricity. The morning roundups are current leaking to earth without interruption or fault. Above busted streetlights, the sun buzzes to a cuffed line of deportees, the sheriff's imbalanced authority. Any laborer gathered for a tear-out agrees the pleasure of opening walls is the view of what's no longer behind. The restrained motion of a body caught within a fence run between language is a union of shock and memory. Old light and heather fatigues leaves us here so alone. I take a trip to your prison town, vehicles to the mouth of some dangerous swallow. Look what shapes the yellow prison windows reveal when darkness falls. I cough up little bones all night, full-on owl pellet by morning. I get halfway through each thought, then jump ship. Narrow life raft. You're on it, too. So this is called um, Novena, a prayer to my mother. Mama, when you call, you ask for something beautiful. They name the mountain that overlooks Patagonia all red. They say if you tilt your head and the light is right, you can see there the curve of her spine, her knees, her ankle, just catching the afternoon sun, her swollen stomach. She is pregnant, the mountain. Her arm, the shadow of a valley, resting on her unborn child. A protection, a benediction, the way you might have laid a hand on me. The mountain is decked in green, summer bursting from it in an exuberance that feels rare and sacred here. I didn't know the border could look like this, I tell you. I could make a comparison here, mama. Old Red is another Mexican woman with another Mexican child. She was resting here before a line was drawn, before land was stolen, before other mothers with other children, like me, but not like me, like you, but not like you. Embarazada, you say. Please know that the border is something literal, 
It is not romantic. It is not beautiful. A border is a killing machine that has been killing before it came to the forefront of our collective conscience. The border is not abstract. The U.S.-Mexico border alone has killed 10,000 people in counting since 1994, and that does not even address the Central Americans who have died seeking refuge. That statistic does not, also does not address the ways in which borders have funded the deaths of marginalized people even on the protected U.S. side. It does not address the lineages which have been traumatized, destroyed, and displaced. This border is titled, The Border is Water. A line for law, awaiting for the barbarians. Night has fallen and the barbarians haven't come. 52% of Border Patrol agents and staff identify as Hispanic or Latino. Who did we happily become for a state that told us that we are somehow superior and even different than the people we put into cages? The border is, is the border is, the border is, the border is, is the border is, the border is, the border is, an accusation that was sung as a sonnet. The border is water, and you cannot drink it. It is reserved for the Americans. The border is a video of a brown child crying, something removed, something we watch. The border has now become a glowing screen. The border is now pain people pay to see. The border is now social currency. It is a fundraiser for liberals to prove to their white audiences that they are all good people, while their hiring practices remain discriminatory. The border is nothing but a smug smile, a moment for clout, for voyeurs. The border is cognitive dissonance. The border is water. And it is presented, upheld, and propagated as if cascading from God's hands and as if he chose to stand and tower over the U.S. and Mexico. It is an arbitrary waterfall and that reaches into the sky. The border is water, and it somehow fits into a one-gallon water jug with just enough space on its dusted sides for a Nazi to slide his hands into and create a waterfall that reaches into the sky as he dumps it. His God above him, watching the barbarian he became in order to stop the barbarians from coming. The border is water, and you cannot drink it. Night has fallen, and the barbarians have not come. Mexico deports more Central Americans than the U.S. The laws say we need borders. We need laws. We need civility. One nation under God. It's so bad the Mexicans say that shit too. The laws say no water. Find those that leave water for migrants, but allow the border agents to toss it. It is not violence if committed by a white man. Is that not the definition of God? Dear refugee, they see the thorns at your feet from travel and tell you that you are not Jesus of the cross, that you are nothing like him. Persecuted people are convinced they have nothing in common with God. But why do they thirst the same way God did? In the stories of when they were whipped, when they were dying. And what is a border really? The border is water, manipulated, contained, and dumped out. Before it can even reach the tongue of those who thirst, it is abundant water, Dangled in front of people for pain, it is money. It is something that scrubbed its hands clean of those dirty migrants from Central America. It is something that washed us away. It is something that removes our humanity. And no matter how many borders exist, my body, which has survived, will continue to ask the same question I was born with. What justifies a border between you and I? Night has fallen and the barbarians haven't come. And now, what's going to happen to us when we run out of water? What's going to happen to, the, to us without those who thirst? Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, 
Those people were a kind of solution. Uh, this poem is concerned with uh, futurity. Adelante to the infinite outward. But in cruise, we move slow. Ain't no hurry for the ramfla to levitate our all-time highs made fuel. This machine equipped with perpetual motion. Put some Funkadelic in the tank and we fly. Teotihuacan, a parking lot. Spaceship circling its crown like a halo. Adelante out here, cucarachas are selling chucherias in the floating fayuca. The Maria Sabina hologram peddling tamales de hongos calientitos. And we came with hambre, a hunger for everything denied. In our past lives, we are always adelante. We land in a carnival of Cantinflas clones performing La Pocha Nostra, Guillermo Gomez Peña on a golden eagle scowling like a jaguar, his gray hair boundless as a Fibonacci spiral. Braided into a ladder and threaded through the eye of a sun pyramid, we see llamas and llanos of our murmurs, stretch our fingers to the expanse of sun rays, touch the heat, but we don't burn, our hands used to gripping reality's hot as pomal. There's a poetry workshop in Nawa, all the browns wonder laboring to conjure a new word for bigote, training sholos for a trip to Miklan to find Octavio Paz and get the chisme and all the unpublished conjugations of chingar. Every alleyway sings a mariachi of oyes and queuboles, Chicano power handshakes rattle to the fault lines. Adelante, we're doing chancla dodging Olympics, held in the ancient ball courts officiated by Maria Felix, tronando her chicharones through a loudspeaker. Here we all brown buffaloes, here we all phantasmagoric mariposas, here we all impervious ashalotl, but we don't need to roam or cocoon or grow back our hearts. Adelante, all the velas stay lit, not to mourn, but to light the landing strips. Everywhere a landing strip, pulling up in stretch astro caravans, swivel chairs that rotate along the orbit of the Mayan Codex, Fixing our mascara in the gold rim mirrors, our cat eyes growling, lips lined into angel alas, our idle hands embrujados, weaving armor out of rosaries. But here, we don't need armor, our skin is barked. Adelante, all the stray dogs of Aslan curled under our feet so we don't need to touch ground. Our teeth are jaded, fangs and chrome grilled and weariless. Our bones hollowed and hallowed, uncut by steel, volando y volado, dreaming all our impossible wings. Gracias. Those poets in order from Tucson were Bojan Luis, Mariana Curtis Coles, and Katarina Ivanok, followed by Claudia Bellin and Yoel Salcido in Phoenix. Thanks very much to contributing writers Susan Briante, Raquel Gutierrez, and Ana Flores for providing us with sound from their events. Coming up next, the history of the revolution. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. You know how a friend calls you to catch up and you talk about the weekend? You talk about work, family, maybe the TV show you've got to watch. By the time you hang up, you're filled in on the important news and maybe a little fun stuff as well. There's a lot going on. And All Things Considered is on when you need to hear a little bit of everything. 
It's this afternoon from 3 until 6 on KJZZ 91.5. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Long before artist Gil Scott Heron told us the revolution will not be televised, two of the most important women in the history of America were making sure it was at least in print. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. They founded a weekly newspaper called The Revolution in 1868, and it was the official publication of the National Woman Suffrage Association. We wanted to delve a bit deeper into their lives and the activism of Stanton and Anthony, so we asked historian Dr. Pamela Stewart for a primer. But I began by asking Dr. Stewart about her own background. I'm the historian on the downtown campus, so that's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, I do teach uh, women in U.S. history, kind of the pre-1880 and post-1880 surveys. But I also teach global history, immigration and ethnicity, um, other wide-ranging courses as well. Uh, I'm actually a latecomer to my education. I didn't start college till I was in my 30s. So I always feel very fortunate to be doing what I love and uh, to be able to share uh, information and relevancy with uh, students, but uh, an audience beyond that as well. Well, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you, because of two extremely important women in the history of America. Those are Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. And particularly in terms of just name recognition alone, I think Susan B. Anthony probably has a lot more name recognition for folks simply because of the coin. I mean, I I had them when I was a child. Uh, They're out of circulation um, for the most part. You can still find them, but certainly they're not being minted, but Elizabeth Kitty Stanton, where was she born and raised? She actually came from a rather well-to-do, privileged family uh, in New York, and uh, she actually had, a, especially for a woman of her era, uh, a very nice education. Uh, and she also, I guess today we might say, dabbled in the law, but that was because women weren't allowed to become lawyers. But uh, through her father's uh, encouragement and otherwise, uh, she certainly I- expanded her education, even if a bit unofficially uh, as well. And do we know about the time period that she really started to become active in politics? Was it about that time when she was getting interested in law? A little bit, although what really moved her in that direction was meeting people associated with her family and otherwise who were involved in the abolition movement. And as is the case in so many situations, once you start thinking and talking about equality and liberty for one group of people, questions naturally arise about uh, other groups of people as well. So she actually was involved in these issues, uh, focusing especially on women ultimately, although not exclusively. Uh, before Susan B. Anthony, uh, before they ever met uh, as well. Well, that was my next question. When did the two of them meet? So people may be familiar with the uh, Seneca Falls uh, conference in 1848, where women and some men met to discuss women's rights, uh, what it's often used as a reference point for the beginning of the suffrage or the right to vote. Uh, movement, but also, and actually in the Declaration of Sentiments that came out of that, um, the right to vote was probably among the most controversial issues on the list of things that they 
uh, enumerated. So uh, Susan B. Anthony's mother and sister, I believe, were at that event in 1848, but Susan B. Anthony was not. And so not until 1851 did they actually meet and really begin their, you know, 50-year-long friendship. Apart from wanting to give us a background on the history of both of these amazing women, is that they also started a newspaper called The Revolution. Uh, right. What year was that? Uh, 1868, so in the post-Civil War era, although I will preface that by saying they have, uh, and certainly the documents exist and they're easily accessible, a long-term correspondence long before that. So the revolution, as they termed it, was uh, sort of owned, we might say, uh, by Susan B. Anthony, but edited by uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and also uh, Parker Pillsbury, uh, <laughs> Uh, interesting name uh, as well. So they started that really as a vehicle to promote their ideas beyond their communities or the places where Susan B. Anthony in particular might go and lecture. It never had a large circulation, maybe 3,000 at its peak, maybe not quite, but it had an outsized effect. Um, You know, newspapers then got It's kind of like sending a link today. Uh, They got read by many more than the person that actually bought them. And so it allowed some of those ideas to get out to working class women, honestly, white women in particular, uh, and expanded the influence of the movement, even though the numbers might not suggest it was particularly popular. Right. And that's, uh, as you indicate there, one of the beauties of a newspaper. It's published, but then, you know, somebody somebody might subscribe to it. They might take it to a coffee shop. They might leave it there. It, it lays around and it has shelf life, as we call it. Definitely. And I'll also add that at a certain point, uh, the newspaper was in debt. Uh, And Susan B. Anthony uh, is the one who ultimately gets it out of debt, but they sell it to someone for a dollar. Susan B. Anthony goes on the stump, and basically within six years, uh, they paid back the debt, which in today's dollars is close to $150,000. But in the process of that, it becomes a different sort of newspaper, less, quote, revolutionary, and eventually uh, by... uh, 1872 is folded into another newspaper that uh, doesn't have the same sort of equal rights focus. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, because the original bent, as I understand it, uh, was laser focused on securing women's enfranchisement through a federal constitutional amendment. Unfortunately, neither Elizabeth Cady Stanton nor Susan B. Anthony would live to see that reality occur. So what types of material then were were included in the early editions of the newspaper to buttress this call for a federal constitutional amendment for the right to vote for women? Well, in addition to the the three main characters, as I outlined them, uh, making contributions, they really took articles, essays, even letters to the editor, women in particular saying, this newspaper is so important, it's made a difference in my community, my world, those sorts of things as well. But they really touched on issues that even today can cause controversy. One thing they actually zeroed in on pretty early on was uh, women's property rights. And essentially, they had none uh, once they were married. And so that long 
upheld idea through English law and otherwise of coverture, the idea that once you marry, your identity, your legal status, everything about you as a woman is underneath, covered by your husband. And so this meant that everything from inheriting property to being able to redistribute it, will it to someone, all sorts of things, uh, women were really vulnerable. So that can seem almost like just, quote unquote, an economic issue, but also things like pregnancy, reproductive issues more generally. Again, this is an era where that went on for some time where a married man had a legal right to essentially do what he wanted with his wife's body. And she had no legal right to say no, for example. So everything from reproductive issues, divorce, certainly the right to vote, property rights, uh, so many things that today we would take for granted as having, you know, and also I'll say that they didn't always only express their own views. So this is also a context where at times they're responding to what others have written, responding to what uh, is being uh, publicized in other newspapers uh, of their time. So they really ran the gamut. Were there stark differences between the background of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony? Did they both come from families of wealth? Or what was the case with Susan no, B. Anthony, for Susan instance? Susan B. Anthony, less so. She was much more, her family was certainly influenced by and associated with Quakers, uh, which was indeed different from uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, you know, she had been a school teacher, uh, and, uh, and I think today almost her, her visual image, especially in her older years, gets associated with, the, quote, the school arm or the library and the hair pulled back, the the glasses. Um, But uh, nonetheless, she, she knew what it was to not only need to make her living, but to be able to put herself out there publicly. Uh, And this is another area where the revolution, but also Stanton and and Anthony, among others, were rather radical in that it really was deemed totally inappropriate for a woman to speak in public. And certainly it was deemed inappropriate for a woman to speak in mixed company, and by that they meant men and women. Although a significant African-American woman, Mariah Stewart, uh, had done so for, as far as we know, the first time in U.S. history in 1839. Those sorts of things of being able to go out there and speak uh, were something that Anthony probably had more sort of practical experience in than Katie Stanton did. Dr. Pamela Stewart from ASU with us on Word. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Coming up next, the relaunch of the revolution. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. Your mornings can define the rest of your entire day. Find the $5 you forgot about in your pocket. That might be a good day. Get stuck in a traffic mess on the 51, probably going to be a bad one. But when you begin your day with Morning Edition, you start fully awake with the latest and most important news to prepare you for whatever comes next. Take control of your day and listen to Morning Edition from 5 until 9 on KJZZ 91.5. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Rosemary Dombrowski is the Poet Laureate of Phoenix, among many other hats that she wears. We welcome her back to the show after last February's appearance to talk about a new project, the relaunch of an iconic newspaper, The Revolution. I began our discussion by asking her, why now? I was in the midst of teaching my summer school class for ASU. I thought that I was going to be slowing down as soon as I got around the corner, and I did not because I ended up 
following, I guess you will, all the clinic closures around the country, the women's health clinic closures, as well as that bevy of state bans on reproductive rights. And then there was the ongoing issue of infants and children being detained in ICE facilities. And I thought, somebody needs to be talking about this in a publication, but maybe creatively. And I call it creative resistance. That's what I like to do, I think, poetically. And I think that's what I like to do in the community, given that you know people see me as more of a poet and more of a poet laureate and less of an activist. <laughs> I think me combining creativity and activism or creativity and resistance has been a really good sort of inroad to more meaningful projects. You know, I saw a meme the other day that said something to the effect of, artists, we need you now. Because when mm-hmm. times are going well, that's not when art flourishes. Right. Would that be kind of a catalyst for what you got into as well? I think so. I think the social conditions uh-huh. seemed ripe for this. I felt like we were at a point where we were in need of the kind of fervor that was reminiscent of the first wave of feminism for me. I was doing Elizabeth Cady Stanton research for the course I was teaching because I always teach Declaration of Rights and Sentiments. I don't remember why I went down an Elizabeth Cady Stanton rabbit hole this summer, (laughs) but when I did, I found this newspaper called The Revolution, which was founded in 1868 by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. It became the official publication of the National Women's Suffrage Association, and it lasted for four years. And I thought, this is the most fascinating archival documentation of the first wave of feminism I've ever seen. It was so inclusive. The base was much larger than what people imagine the first wave of feminism to have been. And so I kind of started plumbing the archives. And I would say within a couple of hours, I Googled it to see if anybody had relaunched it. And no one had. And I think my response to that was, how could no one have resurrected this yet? Like, how has this not been done yet? So then I felt this sense of urgency because I, I, for some reason, felt that everybody was reacting to the clinic closures and the reproductive rights bans in the same way that I was. I felt like everybody was frantically researching that weekend and everybody was going to want to restart this this feminist newspaper because I'm crazy like that. Clearly, I was the only one who was thinking about it. But within 24 hours, I think I'd purchased the web domain. And so what are the differences then in your approach versus Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony in her approach? Well, I think that our eye is definitely more toward the creative. I don't want to say that we're a creative publication. We don't just publish creative writing. We publish social justice writing. If that social justice writing happens to be in the shape of a poem or happens to be in the shape of creative nonfiction, then we're interested. But we're also publishing scholarship that engages with both literature and the Times. We're publishing scholarship that engages with history and contemporary times. And we're also doing some archival curation. So we're looking at old issues of the revolution and we're looking at old uh, feminist documents and immigration documents and seeing you know, how we might be able to repackage these. Is there an interesting forward we could write? Could we excerpt part of this? Could we bring this issue back to people's attention? Can we show people the longevity of this issue and its need to consistently be addressed or to be readdressed? So I think the commingling of the critical and the creative 
is not the entirely new part because a good 19th century newspaper would have commingled the creative and the critical. But that feels like the newest part to me. That feels like the most revolutionary part because there aren't any newspapers doing that. And there aren't even any literary journals doing that. Nobody blends scholarship and poetry anymore. Nobody blends sociopolitical commentary and creative nonfiction. So I wanted to create a container that reflected the broadest community that I work in, which is both scholarly and creative and activist-minded. Well, and when you think about newspapers in general, I mean, we have a very large merger that's going on nationally with newspapers, and the anticipation is that a bunch of reporters are going to be out of job. The amount of, of physical papers that you see out there are obviously lower and lower, depending on the age groups. Um, subscription rates for certain age groups remain at a relatively decent rate, talking about like things like home delivery, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, But this is a digital publication right now. Do you plan to move into a sphere where you're printing copies? I did just lay out the first issue. And because we're laying it out in 17 by 11 dimensions, it's sort of the size of, I keep calling it... um, a church bulletin. <laughs> this sure. is our church. So it's it's a, the a, church of activism. A bifolded, a bifolded <laughs> yes. 11 by 17. Yes, gotcha. absolutely. So I did lay out the first issue. And when I say first issue, I mean excerpts from the first issue. The content that is currently online would not fit in that format unless I were to put insert sheets in, and then it's just going to get messy. And do you have a publication schedule established, or is that something that's sort of working working itself out? Like, you know, do you kind of want to try to get something out every month right mm-hmm. now, and then maybe increase the frequency? What's sort of the goal of the publication schedule? Well, the original revolution was a weekly, and we clearly don't have the staff for that, and we have no funding at present, but we are launching a new issue online line on the first of every month. So we debuted on July 4th because we thought that was significant. (laughs) And then we put up our second issue, which we're sort of calling our first issue, on August 1st. And we already have the October 1st issues partially laid out, at least conceptually speaking. So as far as the print goes, because of financial constraints, we're thinking quarterly. As far as the first one that's already out online, what types of things are in that particular issue? We've got some scholarship about ectoplasmic photography and mental health issues regarding women in the 19th century Hmm. and how that's sort of connected to the present day. We have another piece of scholarship called Three Rivers, which engages a little bit with the show The Handmaid's Tale and also Uncle Tom's Cabin and also the body of the father and daughter who washed up on the Rio Grande River. What's that show? Uh, Was it Quantum Leap where the guy goes back and forth? Yeah, it was Quantum Leap. I mean, this kind of sounds like a a literary quantum leap in some ways. Right? You're, you're, I love it. You're going back mm-hmm. and forth, picking up some ideas, fast forwarding, combining the relevancy of that into yes. things that are still happening today. Yes. Because the fact is, and I think that's maybe one of the points of this publication, these things are still happening Absolutely. today. We would think as a society we're more evolved than that, but I think the publication presents the notion that we're not. Well, we're still talking about the ERA, aren't mm-hmm. we? We're still, you know, dealing. And right here in this state of exactly. Arizona. Exactly. I mean, we know people on the task force. We already interviewed Sivia Tamarkin, who's the director of the film Birthright, which is about reproductive rights in America. And she's also one of the ERA activists, one of the most visible ones in the city. So we did interview her. We love profiles. We love profiling people who are doing this kind of work within the city right now. And we could broaden that out beyond the city of Phoenix. But for now, because we work here, we sort of 
want to highlight the activism that's going on in our community. There's a piece about squatting as civil disobedience as well, which is largely an interview with somebody who squatted after the housing market crash. Naturally, you want to start where your home audience is. That's what we've done with this particular podcast. And then hopefully it gets picked up and it branches out. Uh, Maybe you inspire other people to pick up the work or just submit. Long-term future, where do you see this project going? Well, you're right. Right now, we're primarily targeting our base, other social justice activist-minded people, other creatives, other scholars. But certainly once we're disseminating physical copies throughout the city of Phoenix, we're going to be reaching people outside those parameters. I think once we've gone to a couple of national conferences, my hope is not just that more people will submit, but that people in other cities will start their own quote unquote revolutions. I want this to be infectious. I want it to be instigatory. I want it to be a call to action. I want people to see what's possible in their own cities if they're invested and have access to a copier. You know, some critics might push back and say, hey, we already have all kinds of social media that can achieve that kind of stuff. You know, you put a flash mob notice up on your favorite social media platform, and that's how you get activism going. How would you respond to that? Again, this is a creative resurgence of the original revolution, and I'm a creative activist. So I believe in activism through scholarship. I believe in activism through art. I believe combining those mediums, the scholarly and the creative, and housing them in one package is a way to reach more people. So we're not just reaching people who use social media. We're not just using people who are still chained to print or fond of print. I feel like ultimately there's there's something in what we're doing for everybody. And whether or not this is the best platform, it's the platform that I think me and all of the editors love. We want to see all of these different art forms coexisting and commingling and conversing with one another. And we know that some of the writing is going to appeal to a pretty broad base. Maybe not all of it. Maybe you could talk to me then a little bit about your editorial staff and sort of how you choose what's going to appear in a particular issue. As far as who's on the editorial board, it is comprised of scholars and creative writers, all of whom consider themselves activists in some form of the word, and all of whom have a passion for social justice writing and for furthering social justice in any way possible. Social justice is an extremely broad topic. And so I wonder, do you try to have one issue has a certain theme, like, you know, you might, for instance, focus solely on the Equal Rights Amendment in one issue, and then you might move to voting disenfranchisement or something like that. Or do you try to stay broad throughout each issue? I'm going to say a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. I mean, in anything's inception, you probably don't have enough content across genres to fall under just one theme. So we're certainly not themed right now. I mean, ultimately, when you look at the original revolution, there is such topical diversity because this paper was in part born out of two referenda that were on the table in Kansas in 1867. One would have enfranchised African-American men and one would have enfranchised women. And clearly neither passed, and the revolution launched two months later. That kind of broad understanding, broad connotation of the word feminism, which really just means access and equality, is what we're dealing with. So everything from indigenous rights to immigration issues to Black Lives Matter, 
um, to sexual identity, to feminism, you know, in, I guess, a more restricted sense of the term. All of that falls under the umbrella of the revolution. This may be a difficult question to answer, but and maybe artists don't concern themselves necessarily, but I have to ask it. And how will you know that this is successful? Is there a benchmark? <laughs> I love it. You said maybe artists don't concern themselves with this, and that's probably true. You know, the fact that 12 people whose work I value and whose friendship I value were interested enough to jump on this ship with me <laughs> already means success in my mind. I think just the daily interactions with people and their excitement and that kind of symbiotic relationship that comes as a result of that us both looking at something online together and being really excited about it. When I interact with people in the community and they're excited about this, that's already success for me. Yeah, that's important to say because some folks might have the notion that, okay, well, just coming out of academia, you know, oftentimes public policy things come out of academia and there's an agenda here. And, you know, I'm, I'm putting out the critics, right, okay. mindset here <laughs> to react to. But you're saying that the objective of this is not to shape public policy. If it does... Great. Absolutely. I think we want to shift paradigms like any social activists, right? And you do that in the trenches. I don't think you do that by going to the top and trying to affect public policy. Now, of course, if we can ratify the ERA in Arizona and the revolution can play some small part in that, oh, my God, yeah, I'm all over it. <laughs> um, so this is just it's like birthing another child. This is birthing <laughs> another child for me. So believe me, this is this is not an agenda. I just right. needed a baby. I needed a midlife baby is what I needed. <laughs> right, right. Because, you know, some people would ask, OK, well, what is the difference between politics and activism? Isn't activism ultimately political? I don't know the answer to that question. I've been using the word polemic and polemical a lot. I want to do this creatively and compassionately without the polemics. I don't want to be crossfire. I don't want the revolution to be, (laughs) (laughs) to have the antagonism or the antagonistic spirit of something like crossfire. I want this to be a place where people who are earnestly longing for change and fighting for change within their classrooms, within their homes, within their communities, can come to read and can come to contribute. And if those people aren't writers or creatives themselves, that's what the staff is for. We're here to interview you. We're here to profile you then. You know, we want to celebrate the members of our community who are already doing it right, which is why we include an interview in every single issue. And we will continue to do that. So for me, the creative resistance is a really important distinction from the polemical resistance, which I don't care for. I hate arguing with people. I held up one sign out in front of a gallery to protest art censorship (laughs) one night. And I'm telling you, people were so awful to me. Rosemary Dombrowski, who has brought us back the revolution, along with a team of editors, uh, creatives, writers, community activists. We want to thank you for coming back to Word. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. You can sample our archive of episodes and find out how to contact us by visiting word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon. Thanks for joining us. Word. Word? Word. Was the word. Thanks for listening to Word from the KJZZ studios in Tempe, Arizona. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org.